Hi, everyone. We are back for another episode of the Hauenstein Center's podcast series, Off the Stage. My name is Maddie Miller, and I am the media specialist for the Hauenstein Center. Today on the podcast, I get to interview Adam Liptak, who is the Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times, and in Grand Rapids for our event tonight called Eyeing the Bench, a Supreme Court panel. Thank you, Adam, for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here, Maddie. Okay, great. Well, we're going to start off how we start off every episode, which is with a few questions from our BOQ which stands for Bowl of Questions. So for those listening, those are questions that were submitted this week via social media, and Adam is going to pick a few at random to answer. So feel free, Adam, to pick one out of there, read it to us, and then you can give us your answer. Here comes the first one. How do you prefer your books, hardcover, paperback, or digital? Mm. I like reading hard copy books. Okay. And I like my books to be lighter rather than heavier if I have a choice. Uh, so long as they're still substantial. I don't like like a little trade paperback. Yeah. But uh, a, a, a full-sized paperback version of a, a book will save you a pound or two. Yeah. So so that's my thinking on that important bowl of questions. Yeah, that question. important question. Thank you. That was actually a, a question submitted by one of my coworkers because I do a desk poll every week, and that was my desk poll this week. Yeah. Do you prefer hardcover, paperback, or digital? And so what were the results? Most, I, It was definitely a tie between paperback and um, hardcover, but a lot of people, I think more people said hardcover, so. I can yeah. see that point of view. Yeah, just liking that nice solid, right. Right. like you said. All right, let's do another. Let's do one more. Second bowl of questions. Question: What's something that you can't help but buy, even if you don't need it? Mm, this is a good one. I guess it's a good one. I, <laughs> I do, I do so little shopping. You know, I, I, and and the things I buy, I feel like I do need. Yeah. Um, but. I guess I'll buy myself once in a while a nice bottle of wine when I could make do with less. Yeah, that that's a great answer, and that's a good thing to spend money on. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for answering those questions. Back in the bowl? Yeah, put them back in the bowl for us. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so now we're going to transition into some questions more geared towards your life. Um, this kind of comes from my research um, that I did of you. So first, let's talk a little bit about your early life. You know, where did you grow up? What was your family like? And then what were you interested in did for fun? when you were in high school or college? So I was born in Stamford, Connecticut uh, to Hungarian emigres who'd recently uh, come to the United States after the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. And we spoke Hungarian around the house. I didn't learn English until I went to grade school. Wow. So that was one aspect of my life. Stamford is a fairly conventional uh, suburb of New York City. Okay. and I did the usual things in high school. I probably read more. Mm-hmm. I certainly liked uh, I, I liked and followed rock music. I don't think I had an especially distinctive childhood, except maybe I did gravitate a little bit more to reading and writing uh, than others. I, 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 I was one of those kids who was always carrying a book around. Yeah, that's great. And you said you're into rock music. Do you have a yeah. favorite a favorite band? Oh geez, you know, I I have I have all of the dad rock favorites now. <laughs> <laughs> they were bold choices back in the day. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. 
Um, great. Well, so it looks like, according to my research, um, your first job out of graduating from Yale was being a copy boy for the New York Times. Right. So how did you get that job, and how did that being your first job impact your career? Because now you work for the Times, and you have for a while. Yeah, so it, it, my, my career is long and circuitous and unlikely, but I guess starting as a copy boy, which is as menial as it sounds. <laughs> uh, you know, I was getting coffee for people and uh, yeah. getting going across town to get the first edition of the Daily News. This is so long ago. This is before the internet. This is before really computers. Yeah. With a derivation, the, the reason you call them copy boys and copy girls is mm-hmm. the wire service copy would come out in like a teletype machine and you rip it off and walk it around to the different desks. Wow. So a lot of people do that job and work their way up the hierarchy of the New York Times. That wasn't me. Nobody thought I was doing a good job. I, I had gotten into law school and deferred. Yeah. I did that for a year and I basically, with, with one or two exceptions, I didn't make a mark at all. Um, but it was enough of a leg up that during law school, in my first summer, I went back to the New York Times' corporate legal department. Okay. The New York Times company back then was much bigger, Fortune 500 company, TV wow. stations, magazines, yeah. regional newspapers. Uh, and I worked for the summer in the legal department, and so I got a second kind of leg up at the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Then I went to a Wall Street law firm for about four years and came back to the Times but as a lawyer um, and did that for 10 years uh, helping journalists, uh, keeping them out of libel trouble, helping them get access to information, mm-hmm. protecting them from subpoenas. Um, and it was a good but somewhat sleepy job because the journalists journalistic standards at the Times are high enough, you don't need a lot of help from your lawyer. And then there comes a time when the editor of the New York Times uh, had this crazy idea, let's get the guy from the legal department to come be a reporter. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was terrifying. I didn't really have the skill set. I started on the national desk of the New York Times in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, But it seemed to, over time, work out. And then when... um, my predecessor covering the Supreme Court in Washington decided to retire. Uh, I couldn't figure out a way to say no when they asked me to do that job. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great story. Um, So kind of going back a little bit, um, you were at Yale for getting a degree in English. Did you always think that um, you were going to get a degree in law? Like, was that always part of the plan? Or was that something that kind of came later on? No, I don't think it was part of the plan, but I don't think I had a plan, really. Yeah. And I think I went to law school for all the worst reasons, which is I didn't have any better ideas. Okay, yeah. And what what made you decide to finally, like, just pursue it? Was that just, like, I didn't have a plan, or...? <laughs> it's hard to take myself back into that mindset. Um, and I sure didn't know what I was getting into. Yeah. But it seemed like... I was probably going to do better in life if I had a graduate degree. Okay. Um, And I had this suspicion that law was intellectually interesting. Yeah. Which turned out to be right. I had this suspicion that sort of the writing skills that I thought I had would come in handy in the law. 
And that's only partly right. Okay. The, the law doesn't really reward rhetorical flourishes. It's more a system of logic. Okay. Um, but it turns out, and I went, I went also to Yale for law school, and Yale Law School mm-hmm. is not very practically minded. Um, okay. It's a little more abstract, intellectual, theoretical, and that suited me fine. Yeah. But that meant when I got out, I had to learn a little law. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so my next question is, our, we have a leadership academy within the Howenstein Center, and recently we did a workshop centered around the idea of giving and receiving feedback. So that kind of played into this question. So I'm kind of wondering what giving and receiving feedback looks like in your world. You know, how are you giving feedback to your colleagues, and then also how do you handle feedback about your writing when it's given to you? Um, I don't... I, I don't do a ton of, I mean, I'm sort of in a silo in a way. Okay. You know, I, I, I cover the court, I write my stories, and I get a ton of feedback from the world, from readers, some yeah. from editors, but, you know, more more than most people in most jobs, mm-hmm. I, people have a lot of things to say about what I write. So yeah. there's that kind of feedback, and you need to be, and some of it is civil and some of it is not. Yeah. Uh, but you want to be open to it and, uh, you know, be open to the idea that there are shortcomings in your work, as there yeah. always will be. As far as my giving feedback, it's, you know, purely social and occasional and almost always positive. I don't go out of my way to criticize people. Yeah. Uh, but if someone does something that seems to me particularly well done or neat, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I try to make a point of it. And sometimes I praise it on social media. So it's not just the one on one. Yeah, that's awesome. That is a great answer to that. Um, so I'm sure you have many highlights of your career, but could you just tell us about one and why it was so important to you? Well, it's hard to single stuff out. Um, you know, I've covered the court since 2008, so that's what, coming up on 15 years. Yeah. And there were a few big cases, Mm um, and those days when you're covering Roe v. Wade being overturned yeah. or a right to same-sex marriage being established mm-hmm. or the Affordable Care Act being upheld. Mm-hmm. Those are memorable days. You feel like yeah. you're, you're, you're playing some small part in giving opening a window onto history for people. Yeah, that's great. That's, that is a really cool thing because those are even things I know about and the fact that you get to cover those for your job. Um, so the media and news lead to a lot of divisiveness in our world, as you've kind of already talked about, along with it being hard to navigate due to bias, misinformation, inaccuracy. So I kind of have a two-part question here. First, how do you personally combat this um, in your profession? And second, how have you seen the awareness of bias and misinformation change throughout your career? Uh so in my own work, in, in the work that I do and present to the public, I just try really hard to present information straight, to give both sides. And both yeah. sides is a dangerous thing because there are some issues on which there are two sides that ought to be fairly presented mm-hmm. and other issues where it's a mistake to say there are two sides to say climate change. Yeah. Uh, but luckily, when you're covering the law and you're covering the Supreme Court, there are almost literally always two sides. There's the majority and the dissent. Yeah. There's the lawyers on the two sides. These are respectable arguments. And if you present them fairly to the reader, you're 
doing your job. And so legal yeah. coverage is a little easier than other kinds of uh, journalism, although there are challenges. Um, what has changed? Everything has changed. Yeah. When I was young, and this is not always to the good, but there were very few sources of information. There were three TV networks. There was not cable news yet. There were a couple big newspapers. There were a couple big news weeklies. And they were all basically in the same ideological lane. Okay. Um, I, I'd say basically centrists. And people had a common base of information. Mm-hmm. The Internet comes in. And it looks like it's going to be a great thing. It's going to democratize information. It's going to give, let a lot of people say a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And you hope, and the First Amendment theory would suggest, that people would apply their critical skills and make sense of all of this information, and the truth would emerge. That has not been our experience. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it's led to not consensus but polarization. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's easy for people to sort good information from bad. Yeah. And I know, and it d- disturbs me, uh, because I think my colleagues and I do a good job fairly presenting yeah. our news report, but I know that lots of people uh, think that we're not reliable and you know yeah. just a, a liberal rag, and it's hard to know what to do about that. Yeah, that is hard. Um, so what what kind of things do you do um, in your re- like when you're researching things to make sure that you're getting the whole picture? Like is there certain tips and tricks or advice you'd have for people to be more aware? Uh, so what I what I do again is is a little distinctive because there's really high quality advocacy at the Supreme Court and yeah. the and the briefs are excellent and the oral arguments are excellent and the justices are you know good able lawyers so it's a little easier than in a lot of fields but the one thing i would say from my own experience is go to the primary materials okay. don't trust someone's account of something if you can read the thing itself yeah. so i i have i i have colleagues without legal training who say well, a source tells me that the arguments in the case are thus and so. Mm-hmm. So, well, the, the source may be right, the source may be wrong, but the brief is available. Yeah. Go read the brief. Yeah. So going back to that original source, yes. really, that's, that is great advice. Um, so another question I had was um, something I actually asked in a podcast a few weeks ago, and the answer was just so fun. I was like, <laughs> I got to bring this answer ba- or this question back. Um, but when you think back on your career, who is someone that you've learned um, a lot from or just inspired you or just someone you really looked up to? Uh, the great First Amendment lawyer in the 20th century is a man named Floyd Abrams. Okay. And uh, he was probably the most influential lawyer in the area of First Amendment free expression in American history. Yeah. And I took a class from him in law school I went to work for him at his law firm for four years. I've uh, maintained uh, respect for him and uh, developed a friendship with him, and we've taught classes together. And so the role of Floyd Abrams in my life and in the life of American law is a a key uh, connection. That's awesome to hear. 
Um, okay, so I have two more questions for you. The um, second to last one is, um, the New York Times now owns the famous game Wordle. <laughs> so I have three questions. One, do you know who makes the word every day? Do you play the game every day? And if so, have you ever gotten it on the first try? So the best I've ever done is two. Oh, that is good. <laughs> I think there's a curated list of words, and then I don't know that someone picks them, but I, I don't know how it works. My, okay. my guess is that it's sort of computer-generated. Yeah. And do I play it every day? I used to. I used to have a very impressive streak. And yeah. now, now I'd say I play it three days out of four. Okay, that's fun. But we do sometimes feel like a, you know, a game company with a newspaper attached. Yeah, because Wordle is so popular. I still play the Wordle sometimes, so I love that. Um, okay, so my very last question is a question that I actually end all of these podcasts with. And that is, what advice would you give um, to somebody wanting to go into your field? So whether that is journalism, law, or just being you know, a professor in law or journalism, whatever. I had a great piece of advice from a federal judge who was then a First Amendment lawyer about how, how to sort of break into that area and, and and not knowing how to open the first door. And he said, what you do is you hang around the hoop and hope someone gives you the ball. And I think what he meant by that is anything, any job, being a copy boy in my case, an internship, something that gets you near the people who make the decisions, the hiring and other decisions, and have a chance to look at you. That's not to say you're going to succeed, but you put yourself in a position to get to the job you really want by at least being in the neighborhood. And I thought that was very good advice. It worked for me. Yeah, that is really good advice. I'm even thinking about just like my own life. I'm like, okay, (laughs) that is great. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Our office is really excited to have you at our event tonight. Do you ever get nervous to speak at events or is it just kind of part of your thing now? (laughs) I confess I, I don't really. Maybe I should. No, that's great. That's great to not get nervous to speak in front of a crowd. I mean, I wish I was that way. So that's great. Well, thank you so much for all of your answers. It's been a real pleasure to be with you, Maddie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Off the Stage Podcast, a series produced by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The Hauenstein Center, inspired by Ralph Hauenstein's life of leadership and service, is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, our Cook Leadership Academy, or our Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu. To keep up with our current events and reoccurring initiatives, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review or rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thanks for listening to Off the Stage Podcast.